Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called We're Only Human and today's theme is human behaviour. Just a quick thing before we get started in terms of your behaviour, um, if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, then please do. And while you're there, please do keep remembering to rate, review and recommend us. It helps us out so, so much. So thank you to you for that. And onwards with today's theme, which is human behaviour. The term fart in a colander, yes, fart in a colander, is naval slang apparently to describe indecisive behaviour. This is because it's like herring around like a fart in a colander, not sure which hole to come out of. In early 20th century Scotland, attempts were made to ban ice cream parlours because they were thought to be encouraging promiscuous behaviour among young people. The fear apparently was that girls would try ice cream, which would lead to cigarettes, then on to kissing and eventually to prostitution. Absolutely nothing wrong with that logic whatsoever. And over in the United States, eligibility to vote differs by state. In Kentucky, for example, idiots and insane persons may not vote. In Vermont, voters must be of a quiet and peaceable behaviour. And over in Washington, voters must be able to comprehend the nature and effect of voting. Well, that would have ruled out one big orange twat for starters. And back in the UK, a Tyneside secondary school improved exam results, behaviour and absenteeism just by moving the start of the day from 9am to 10am. No, I'm at home, at home my office, up in the attic. Nice. And it's squirrel, squirrels away. That's today's guest, Dr Grace Lorden. Most people overestimate what they can achieve in a year and underestimate what they can achieve in 10 years. It's not clear who first made that statement, when they said it or how it was phrased exactly, but apart from that, it's an excellent bit of trivia and we do talk about it in today's chat. And in Grace's latest book, she says, when people are asked to write down all of the big changes that happened in the last five years, the list is long. In contrast, when asked if they expect any big changes over the next five years, they will often draw a blank, which means that when we look backwards, we're overachievers and forward, we are underachievers. Interesting. And last but not least, this isn't a fact from one of Dr. Grace's books. I read it online, so it definitely must be true. Apparently, taking paracetamol makes you more likely to indulge in risky behaviour. It is, it's actually, it is a nice addict, actually, as addicts go. Dr. Grace Lorden, economist and behavioural scientist, is the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative and an associate professor at the London School of Economics. She is an expert on the determinants of individual success, focusing on women's progress in the workplace, the future of work and productivity through diversity. She's a member of the UK Government's Social Mobility Task Force and is on the Women in Finance Charter's advisory board. Her most recent book, Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want, covers themes such as pleasure versus purpose, procrastination, productivity and attitude to risk. Grace and I talked about human behaviour, emotion, habits, 
bias, decision-making, universal ordering, Boris, failure, trolling, hedonistic adaptation and gender. But I started by asking her what a behavioural scientist actually is. So I'm actually an economist. So I went and I studied economics, very traditional economist. And if you're an economist, you believe that every time people make decisions, they weigh up the cost benefits and the risk of every single decision that, they're make, that they make. And I ended up working in companies who asked me to make, help them make better decisions. And I realized very quickly that's not true. And I discovered this whole area of behavioral science where we believe that there's actually two different thinking styles. One mimics the economist, upside downside risk. And the other side then is your habit, you're on autopilot, your body is driving you, whatever you want to believe, but you're not really in control. You're just doing things unconsciously. But I think the fascinating thing is that we spend about 80% of our waking hours in that mode. And that's really what drives my research. So thinking about what are the habits that you as an individual or leaders need to put in place in order to run lives and teams better. So take me through the first one again. So the sort of economist version of that is what? So the 20% is, is what? So the economist version is 20% where you're basically looking at your mortgage and you're really scrutinizing the cost benefits and the risk of taking on that particular mortgage. You're concentrating, you're hyper-focused and you're really trying to understand the facts and the figures. So it's literally weighing up the economics of the situation. Literally weighing up the economics of the situation. And economists take that further and they believe that if you're deciding to have an extra uh, an extra glass of Pinot Grigio or you're deciding to have a Big Mac or you're deciding you know to do something else that might be uh, that you might like that you're weighing up the cost benefits and the risks every single time and you just have to look at human beings and realize that that's not how we operate we tend to make very snap decisions very very fast and often when you ask people why they did something that they did they won't fully understand the rationale and remind me never to date an economist because that sounds dreadful if we're sitting there and they're like well I buy you <laughs> flowers but I don't think that's going to be enough of an no, effort versus return or might they decide to buy me the flowers oh I think you would be absolutely worth it <laughs> okay I'm glad you think so um so yes but I believe you're you're in the minority but is there um and it well that makes me think that um just huge decisions like my one to leave the boardroom to be a stand-up proves that we don't all get led by uh, economic good sense, do we? We're led yes. by other things entirely. So that what? 20... Yes, sorry, go ahead. Was that, emo- was that emotional? So, because I, I know I know the history of it and, and you met Joan Rivers and you, you kind of had this, you know, this namaste moment where you decided that you wanted to leave. But was it an emotional reaction from you or was it, some, was it actually that you said, actually, really, I'm good at this uh, comedy stuff and I don't know why I'm not doing more of it? Well, it's really interesting to kind of unpick this really, but in the light, not of my story, but what people listening can understand about your research on other people's stories, because I always used to say to people when I was a coach, if you're only doing this for the money, that strategy will reach its sell-by date and you will, all the sort of cracks will start to show in terms of motivation at worst, kind of mental or physical ill health. So you're not going to be fulfilled if you're doing a job just for the money. But there's a big difference between that and actually having the courage to say, well, I'm just going to go do something else when you also still need to earn enough money to live. So I guess every person listening can relate to those kind of positions. And I'm a massive believer in towards thinking, you know, motivational theory, not going away from something you don't like, but rather towards something compelling and starting from the possibility of what would my future perfect life look like. So this is all more sort of NLP stuff, but does kind of overlap with some of the things in your book. So 
I guess that in terms of it felt like it felt like both insofar as I certainly wasn't going to leave a a boardroom thinking I would earn more money as a stand-up I absolutely did not think that I thought I was going to be in real to use an economics term in real financial shit for a bit because of that decision but I did weighing everything up decide it was the right decision and if I needed to downsize or move into somewhere completely different I'd do it so where so is that as a kind of process how common would that be my sort of thoughts on that versus how other people would handle it I guess everyone is so different in how they would weigh up a situation I think for big decisions what you describe is quite common but then people will end up making the final push with their emotions so so usually when you ask somebody about you know choosing a partner choosing a house choosing a job they will have had some kind of agonizing time. And people say stuck actually for years because of this, they go forward and back, forward and back, forward and back. But usually the actual push to move is something that's emotional or a gut feeling or something that the person can't actually quite describe. And ultimately it's, it's, it's pushing themselves into that risk, I guess. But and you need a strong emotion to do that. So, you know, maybe Joan Rivers, you know, she's an, a, um, an amazing person. Having her pointed out to you was something that gave you that final impetus to kind of jump and say yes. I think it's also the possibility we have, and, and I'm really interested by some of the themes in your book, one of which is rewriting self-narratives. Yeah. Because we sort of need to get out of our own way, don't we? That's often the bigger thing. We sort of think, oh, the world's against me. I can't do this. 50-something women aren't going to break into being on screen. We can tell ourselves all of that, and indeed the world can tell us that too. Yeah. But at a certain point, it is somebody sowing a seed and going the biggest thing that that I had in that conversation was an 81-year-old woman telling me that at 45 I was young and I was in the thick of it. And that is an entire reframe. And thank God for somebody doing that. So that's the biggest thing for me. And that's much more tied to possibility rather than fantasy. Someone saying, no, it is possible. You're not living in a dream world. And I was lucky enough to get an external impetus to tell me that. But you don't. the universe doesn't always throw you one of those. So again, in terms of thinking about that, it doesn't take away the risk that you might fail, but it does allow somebody who knows what they're talking about to say, but you might also succeed. Yes. But it's funny that you mentioned the universe because often people who are thinking about moving start looking for signs to back up their decision because they don't want to have almost full ownership of their decision. They want something else, something divine to actually tell them to go forward and I think very often in that situation, people find those signs. So whether it is the universe actually speaking to them or whether or not it's the fact that they're searching for something and they'll ultimately find it, um, we can you could debate that backwards and forwards. But it's quite common that the eureka moment isn't just the person saying, oh, now I've changed my mind, but they attach it to, they attach it to a story. That yeah, means, we see what we want to see, yeah. don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think you would have got there. I think you would have got there. I think Joan got you there faster but I think you would have found yourself on the stage. That's really interesting. That's really interesting because you feel, and also we do rewrite history, don't we? It's a much neater story to tell it the way I tell it. It's yeah. much better for getting bookings on stage. It's it's true, but it's interesting how we retrofit. And I know you talk in your book about the locus of control and external internal locus of control, which in NLP terms is kind of being externally or internally referenced. Yes. But but so so yeah, tell me more about that, that locus of control and how that impacts on, on making good decisions about what you might do with your life and your career. I mean, the locus of control really is how do you think things are happening to you? So for some people, 
it's always themselves. So if they get wiped out by a big recession and they lose their job, they'll still really blame themselves. They have this kind of internal internal locus of control. It's all inside themselves. On the flip side, they'll believe that their rebound and their comeback is all within their own control. So they'll set about making that happen. Um, the external locus of control is where people think that things just happen to them. And this kind of cohort of the population are much more likely to get stuck. Um, in reality, we go in and out of internal locus of control and in different domains. So maybe in health and you know dating, you might feel that you have an internal locus of control, you're fully in control, but maybe with family and work, you have an external locus of control and you think things just happen to you. Um, but you, but also the thing to remind ourselves is that every situation, regardless of what it is, there's both. There's external factors and internal factors that mold our circumstances. And I think what Think Big is really about is getting people to identify what they actually can control, even if it's tiny, even if it's 5%, working with that 5% to take control. So you end up having much more control over your own life. And you're not just at the end of someone else's boots or the end of some macroeconomic cycle determining what's going to happen in your life, that you're the one you're the one who's deciding. And, and for me, that's really empowering because I think even people who are having really terrible situations today, just zoning in on these are the three things that I can control in this particular moment. And this is what I'm going to do for myself is, is the most empowering thing that you can do for yourself on, 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 on any one day. And, you know, folk who I've spoken to have been bullied, have had discrimination at work, um, have been gaslit, had really bad times, actually. And the sheer act of changing it from these things are happening to me to an acknowledgement of these things are happening to me, but there's a small thing that I can control and I'm going to use that to get me out of this situation is really, really important. So it's not colluding in the things that aren't that are happening to you that really shouldn't be. It's not accepting them. It's just saying, I'm going to focus, I'm going to control the controllables, literally what is it, is it within my gift? I guess the benefit of that is also letting go of the things that aren't within your gift. I know when I split up with my kid's dad, who's been a great dad to my, my kids um, ever since the last two decades, but a friend of mine who, who was a bit further into a divorce saying, just focus on what he can do and what he will do. Yeah. Really try and get him to do that. And things you just think he maybe should do, but he'll never do. Just let those go because you can fight about them for the next 30 years and he'll never, it'll make no odds. And it doesn't mean, and again, this isn't specific to him. He's done nothing wrong, but it doesn't mean you're saying that's okay, but it means you're decluttering enough that you can have an energy to do the stuff that yeah. does actually make a difference, I guess. And is it in terms of that idea of what you can control and sort of good decision making? And you t obviously the title of the book is Think Big, Take, you know, Taking Small Steps. And I think you talk about thinking big and acting small. And there's a quote, I don't, I, I've seen it attributed to loads of people and you probably will have heard it or know who it's attributed, who it's correctly attributed to. But it's this quote, most people overestimate what they can achieve in a year and underestimate yeah. what they can achieve in 10 years. So I'm sure you've heard that. Who, who do you, I don't know who, I don't I know, it was Bill no. Gates, it was a Stanford computer scientist. I've heard it attributed all over the place. I've seen it attributed to lots of different people, to be honest. So I won't give, I won't give kudos in case I get it wrong, but, but I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, we tend to think that we can, and health is the perfect example, right? If anyone is listening who's tried to lose weight, where when we decide to lose weight, we want to lose a stone in a week or a month or something crazy like that. But actually losing weight over a year or 18 months is going to give you much more sustainable impact. And it's very easy to do, actually, if, if, if you just stick to it. And it's the same across any domain in life. If you make small steps towards the goal that you're going in, over the medium term, um, which which will be years, but it might be as small as one year, you will see big effects in your life. 
if you really try to rush something, for the majority of us, that sets us up for failure. So the majority of things that we might want to achieve that are big, you know, unless you have amazing privilege, amazing access to networks when it comes to jobs, it's just going to be too difficult. Unless so, you're a middle-aged white man, basically. Unless you're a middle-aged white man work. or the son of a middle-aged white man, they're doing They're doing, they're quite doing well. okay too, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's looking at, um, in terms of sort of taking things forward, because one of the things, and I know you talk about the sort of intent action gap, which I guess ties into procrastination as well. Yeah. So we all have that thing where we know what will help us and then there's lots of reasons we wouldn't do it, right? I mean, part of it might also be a slight self-sabotage, like I shouldn't have a drink, I'm going to go and have four drinks. But there's also a sort of, uh, which is, I guess, going after pleasure and, and sort of something that gives you a kick as opposed to just not doing anything. But how much, I think probably loads of creatives who listen to this, myself very much included, we do work to deadlines, but we don't have to get given deadlines, a yeah. gig is a deadline, which is why lots of us didn't write much during the pandemic because we didn't have the gig as the deadline. Some people wrote prolific amounts, but people like me who are deadline orientated wrote very little. So how does this apply then to sort of, I know you do lots of work within sort of, um, you know, within the kind of business sector and you're, you're um, you know, you, you're an expert advisor um, to the to the government in, in, in skills and productivity. So you're in those kind of worlds, which are supposedly more delineated and where there are career paths and leaders but does this also apply to people who've got much more meandering careers and people like me who are living by their right brains and everything's much less regulated um, I will first say that I haven't advised the government since Boris Johnson's government okay and I and I, and I think that's really important I never thought I would be proud to say that I Johnson. Yeah, come on, explain this one. It seems it seems important. It, it, it seems important in this moment because there's been so much churn. Um, so you I, so you missed the then subsequent, however many prime ministers. It would have been confusing to know who you it, were working it would have for. Been, it would have been very confusing to me. I mean, to be fair to Boris, I really liked his um, his manifesto on skills, and that's kind of why I ended up working in the government. He he had a, a manifesto that basically said it's ridiculous to say that when you're 16 or 17 that you'll know what you want to do for the rest of your life. So what I'm really interested in is giving people loads of chances to go back and reskill and kind of change ultimately what they what they will do and they can have that ac across their whole life. So if at 18 you don't want to go to university, don't go. You can use the money at 30 or you can use the money at 40 or 50. And I and I, I really like that because I think so many kids are under pressure to decide what they want to do. And so many people, you're a great example of this actually, um, switch careers, right, into something totally, totally different and might want to be able to retrain or have a have a skills budget. So that 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 part of it I actually really liked. But he was bound to be an advocate for changing his mind, given how many times he's changed his mind about who he should be married to, who he yes. should be sleeping with, whether or not he's pro or against Brexit, depending on what suit you're doing. So he's the he absolutely <laughs> knows how to stand behind changing your mind. Are you yeah. allowed cheese and wine? Are you not? Was it a party? Was it not? So you're not involved in the current government. No. But the fact that you have sat in in that way and been part of the sort of levelling up effort. And clearly, and we'll talk about this, the kind of work you do to remove barriers to people for whom it is harder to progress and harder to have opportunities. And I know that's a big part of your work, you know, through diversity, whether it's, um, you know, ethnicity, whether it's gender. But in terms of that that sort of world, so that sort of corporate businessy infrastructure-led world, where I guess you're also trying to make big cultural changes yeah. versus... Lots of people now, you know, 
going back to sort of Charles Handy's book whenever it was 20 odd years ago now, wasn't it? Or 30 years ago, The Elephant and the Flea, the fact that we're sort of moving into areas where people are hopping around, you know, as the flea from elephant yeah. to elephant, whether it's people like me or whether it's people who decide to go freelance in a, in a in technology or another side. So how does this all apply then to people where it's very much more based on sort of gig economy and and, and without formal leadership structures and, and sort of begging forgiveness, not permission? How does this all apply to to people like me? Well, I think it's more important for you than anyone else, really. So like if you're in a if you're in a corporate company, for better or worse, they do kind of take control of your career. There's a pathway if you if you want to stay on it and you get to kind of climb, climb the rungs. And there's some structure around that. I think if you decide to be in the gig economy, there's so much uncertainty now. I'm assuming you want to make money or you're assuming that you want you want to you want to do well at kind of at what you're doing. It needs to be that you have kind of some plan about what what good actually looks like for you so that you can actually aim for it. And I think without that, people are kind of doomed to be dragged around like a plastic bag by clients that happen to come along or don't come along. So if I was to choose an audience to read Think Big, it would be more people who are living with uncertainty, taking the risk of being entrepreneurial or solo, uh, solopreneur, um, and ultimately just need to kind of think about what does good look like for me and how can I actually get there and how can I take control of this? And I love the thing, there's a few things that were really new concepts in your book, as we would hope, or there'd be no point you writing it. So there's lots of stuff I hadn't thought of in this way, even though I've read a lot around the topics you tackle. And I found that you articulated pleasure versus purpose brilliantly, because that idea, it's something that we all instinctively know. And definitely as a woman in my 50s, surrounded by many friends who are in a similar life phase, so much of what makes us do what we do is about purpose, voice and relevance, as opposed to finance and sadly, as opposed to fun. So there's this real awareness of that, I think, among middle-aged women, where sometimes our relevance and our purpose can be diminished by things around us and the expectations can be that it should be diminished. But that idea of purpose, it's not just about, I want to go and work for a charity and save the world um, sort of purpose. There's something much more minute and personal than that, isn't there? There is. I, I think if we think about happiness, you usually are trying to get more pleasure more purpose and ideally you get a balance of both. So if you just kind of go out every day, socializing, meeting people, that will soon get very, very boring. The fact that we actually enjoy the company of our friends is because we don't get to do it every second, every second of the day. The fact that we enjoy going to the cinema is the fact that we're not sitting in the cinema from eight o'clock in the morning to eight o'clock in the evening. And then you ask yourself, well, what else am I going to do with my life if I can't just fill it with pleasure? And purpose is the thing that has been found to be self-sustaining. So, you know, most people who have kids will say that actually having the children at times was quite tedious, if they're being honest. There was kind of periods probably when it was quite difficult if you're balancing things with children. But those same people would say it absolutely gives them the most purpose in their lives. There's, 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 There's nothing more fulfilling than having children. And that can feel at odds with each other unless you make this distinction between pleasure in, in, in every single moment and doing something that you feel purposeful about. And I think when it comes to jobs, a lot of the kind of really kind of jobs that give you payoff both in terms of income and in terms of you feeling self-satisfied require a huge outlay of risk and effort for you that doesn't just come with your innate talent. And the only way as human beings that we can motivate ourselves to put in that effort, you know, and, and, and put in that risk is to have this reward of purpose, purpose at the end. And I think it's really interesting, you know, the, 
the discussion now about this idea that we always need to have purpose in our lives, in our jobs, is kind of harming people a little bit because it's impossible to have purpose at every single moment of every single day in your job, right? There has to be some parts that aren't particularly nice. That's that's just the way the job go jobs go. But I think even more interesting, it kind of moves people out of jobs actually that we really need folk to do in society where people might ne- not necessarily feel in the moment that they're having purpose towards some other jobs where there's probably too few of those to go around so like what what sort of jobs would people be moving away from and into yeah I mean you see people moving away from things like you know drains rubbish collection stuff that we actually need in our society in order to function even nursing um a lot of nurses are feeling quite burned out and are you know you you, you might you might be surprised to hear but low on purpose and the reason that they feel that is because they're going into a place where they're underpaid and they're overstretched and being able to do the job to the level that they know is needed becomes really, really difficult. So it doesn't mean the job itself doesn't have purpose. It means that the way the job is now packaged, mm-hmm. number of nurses and salaries does d- does feel that way. And these are really important jobs for our society. You know, we want we want people to collect our rubbish. We want people to fix the loo when it's broken. You want someone to take care of you when you're in hospital. And ideally, you know, these are three jobs that I picked out of my head, but they're probably some of the most important jobs that we have in society if you were to kind of rank things in a list of 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 people who you want to who you want to keep around to keep us functioning and then we have to think about how do we how do we create purpose for for individuals in 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 those circumstances and ultimately it comes down to well-functioning governments and pay and making the job more attractive than than it is currently but it's, it's something that we really have to think about sooner rather than later so macro, there is macro purpose in all of those in that every person doing those jobs could see, well, I'm doing something that massively benefits society and community but not but the in the minutes, yeah, at an individual yeah. level. Because again, I really like the idea of the sort of um, the kind of audit where you're looking at your tasks, but also enjoyment of the tasks, because it, I think lots of us try and I try and break down what I'm doing in terms of how much time I'm spending on it. I sometimes think about money, but I usually try to think, well, if the overall amount, I'm not thinking right now, what am I earning for us talking? I'm thinking yeah. over the course of this week or this month, here are all the things I'm doing, which between them mean I earn enough money to live this month. And then yeah. I stop thinking about it sort of task to task. But I don't think I think enough about enjoyment. And I know when I I did, um when the pandemic first started, um, the lockdown I hadn't I used to do a lot of executive coaching and I hadn't done any coaching for quite a time because of change in direction of career and I did a hundred one-off one-hour pro bono coaching sessions for creatives who'd lost their job and their capacity to work because of all the venues and stuff being shut down and one of the things that was so evident in that apart you know everyone thought everyone else was doing better than they were Everybody yeah. thought that that you know they were the, they were having a bigger problem with it in terms of their their resilience that they were the one who was at fault, but nobody had any thought about enjoyment at that point. I don't think most of the world had thought about enjoyment, but I think that's something that it, you almost feel guilty using that as a measure to weigh up. I mean, lots of people who do what I do have chosen to do it because they enjoy it, you know. But we love the bit on stage. I sort of joke about say that you know that the hour on stage is my happiest easiest hour of the day it's the other 23 hours that are difficult and that is very true of a lot You're of performers yeah what, not, stre- not on the- stage no I'm stressed getting to the point I'm on stage but usually not usually because something's gone wrong as you know with the bloody trains or the microphone or someone told me to go to the 11th floor and I meant to be on stage on the third floor so I, I find that stressful no I like 
but that's because I I kind of prepare so much that by the time I'm doing it, I'm like, well, this is the fun bit, the difficult, like this now talking to you is the fun bit and not that reading your book isn't fun, but doing all the research for something can feel like, right, I've got to do all these hours, but this bit's the lovely bit. The effort, you know, the the, the effort required to make things look effortless, that whole thing. Namaste, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. But that idea of measuring things against enjoyment and sort of minute to minute, task to task enjoyment. So how important is that? And how much do people tend to be aware of that? I think it's so important. So I, I like to divide time into three different types. So the things that give you pleasure in the moment where you're really enjoying it. Um, the the second are the ones that you're doing because of the future. So your research in this example would be it will give a payoff in the future. And that's why you're doing it at this moment of pleasure. And the last then, which are things which are a total waste of time. And you know, you want to be altruistic. So you can also think about what am I doing? that gives other people pleasure but as value or what am I doing that invests in other people's future? So you might be sitting with your kids doing their homework. And then the last bit is um, then thinking about what are the things that waste my time? And it's the things that waste people's time. I really want them to pull out. So these things like, you know, surfing social media, being on Netflix, online shopping, being on emails, reacting, my whole day. <laughs> reacting to someone else's mood. You know, one thing that I, what, what I realize when, when I do my time audits which is something that I really battle with is that if I'm dealing with people during the day, it'll be 90% pleasurable people. And then you'll always get one a-hole who their life has to become your life in, in, in that particular, in, in that particular moment. And I always give way too much attention to the a-hole and not enough attention yes. to the people who are just being incredibly nice, interacting with me. It really drags my attention. And most people are the same, but I think, figuring out that balance for yourself where you don't let your mood react to the one person who is just acting up. Um, but you do kind of spread it out evenly. So you're also enjoying yourself a bit more, but you're giving attention to people who are, you know, behaving, behaving well, ultimately. And I think if people listening do that exercise over a week, they'll figure out they actually probably have a lot more time to do things that would allow them to grow, to invest in their future careers, to have more leisure time then you know they're, they're they're doing currently which is really important you know you mentioned um women in their 40s um I wish say, 50s in my case but yes or, 40s and women 50s. in their 50s but that cohort are the ones that don't have the kind of the social experiences that are kind of high on fun and high on laughter relative to the rest of the rest of the population and again making sure to schedule that schedule things that actually make you feel feel good in the moment whether it's a massage or whether it's hanging out with friends and getting drunk but allowing yourself those moments and sacrificing the things that really aren't aren't working for you I guess it's a bit like the um and this again is very relevant to people who do what I do but probably relevant to all of us in different ways the idea that you might have you know a hundred people who leave lovely reviews of your podcast or think your show is amazing and then you get one comment where they're like you're you're stupid, you're not funny, why are you even a comedian? And that's the one that you'll take with you for the night, the month, forever. Yeah. And the other 99 just get sort of filed in, oh, that was nice to hear. So I guess we all have that propensity, don't we, to sort of really for the difficult things to really stick with us and to just discount the the nice things along the way. I think knowing that and not reading them. Um, not reading them's good, yeah. 
yeah, that can become your, if it really gets you down, I think, or just choosing to read them always on a Friday and setting aside a few hours to be grumpy and then moving on with your life is something else that people have found. Or delegate if you're lucky enough to have, and and again, you don't actually pay someone very much. I have someone I delegate my trolling to only because um, (laughs) there are platforms where my parents and my children are. And I don't want my parents and my children seeing some of the things that get said to me on Instagram and Facebook. What do they do? They delete. They go through deleting and blocking. If there's anything, not everything. If someone wants to say, I don't think you're funny or I thought you were shit at the comedy store last night. Obviously, that's absolutely up to them. We're not trying to sanitize what everyone thinks about me as a person who does stuff (laughs) creatively. But if someone's really vicious and personal and toxic yeah so I mean it's 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 not it's at the extreme end it's it's not just differences of opinion that I don't you you delete you don't talk to them uh I never talk to them I never ever ever talk to them and I don't get the person who does this for me who you know and and again the people who can do this are usually kind of young media savvy it takes them an hour a week and they don't need loads of money to do it and it takes that off your shoulder so I do think you can sort of delegate even at a low even if you don't have a huge amount of money sloshing about um so you don't have to see it but in terms of, because um, that's another thing you talk about, um, hedonistic adaptation. So that is the fact that no, I think this is talked about by Martin Seligman in his books, Learned Optimism yeah, and Authentic yeah, Happiness and yeah. stuff. So the idea that that you don't, well, you you explain it. I'll, I'll do a sort of crap version. <laughs> Let's get the proper version. So it's really keeping up with the Joneses. So if you're on a hedonic treadmill, it basically means that every time you get a pay rise, Every time you consume something, it gives you a, a bit of satisfaction, but it dissipates very, very quickly. And then this kind of gets you thinking, why do we spend so much time you know, chasing a, a higher paycheck, chasing more money, when there is a certain level that you can earn that can keep you in a life that's probably much more pleasurable. And I think as people get older, whether it's you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, eventually they do re- realize you know, this is a, there's so many things that I'm doing that are a waste of time in the pursuit of money that will just buy more stuff that isn't actually giving me any happiness. So I'm now either going to change how I spend my money, which can be quite effective. So buying more experiences, for example, as opposed to buying things which you can actually enjoy, or I'm just going to earn less money and have more time, more time for myself. And I think a combination of those is is quite is is quite a useful useful way to proceed. Um, and I've never met anyone who buys loads of stuff, who ends up still being happy with the thing, you know, two months, three months, four months, five months later. And usually when people say that they are happy with an item, it's something that has sentimental value. So maybe their parents gave them a watch, for example, or maybe it's something that they saved up for for a very long time. And for that reason, it it means something to them. But just consuming endlessly, we just don't get much pleasure out of that. So it's better not to keep up with the Joneses and to find, find your own way in life. It's also about, um, I think, when, when you've got options where there's a better paid option or a lesser paid option and you're trying to be, well, brave enough but also sensible enough because everybody, no one listening is going to be, well, not many people yeah. listening and going to be like, I've got a shit ton of money and I just don't know what to do with it. We're all in a difficult sort of time economically. But it's easy to think you've, whenever I turn down, if I turn, you know, I've really tried nowadays to turn down sort of big ticket corporate speeches and stuff, which I'm lucky enough to get sometimes if in favor of like, if I've got a holiday book with my daughter or I'm taking my dad away for the weekend, I really try to have the courage to turn things down, even though economically that's a terrible decision. And I also try to think, well, you never had that money. You could have had that job, but no one had given, no one took that money from you. You just didn't earn that money. It was never yours in the first place, which helps me make that decision um but it is really hard even at the age I am where you've got more of a financial buffer zone than some younger people who uh, you know have have had no chance to build up stuff haven't had the chance to you know get into property because how can they now 
But is there, in terms of that, um, I, I wanted to talk to you about the Me Plus concept. So can you explain what that is? So Me Plus is having a vision of what who your future self should be. And this should be something without constraints. So you think about if it all worked out in five or 10 years time, what would my Me Plus be doing? And, and the idea behind that is to firstly get you to come up with a think big goal. So having a goal in, its, in and of itself has been shown to make you be much more likely not necessarily to reach that goal, but to reach an equally big goal, which is quite fascinating. So you set off on a journey and you might end up in a different place, but it's ultimately much better than where you would have been. But it also allows you to bring your future self into the into the present day. So kind of the idea of kind of visualizing who you are in the future in the present day again has been linked to um people being um being much more likely to much more likely to fulfill that because they'll put in the effort today. If you can really think about what Callie looks like when she's 60, if you can believe it. Please Callie. don't think about that. <laughs> and it's not that far into Visualize the future. Her. You know, this AI can do this for you now, so you don't even need to worry. Well, I don't want that AI. That's why I don't <laughs> like AI. I don't need to know. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're much more likely to put efforts in today to making sure that she's going to be okay. So I think in, 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 in the shorthand, you can think about your Me Plus as the ideal person that you want to be in the future. Um, the the concept is really there to make you care about that person in the same way that you care about a friend or a parent or a child. So you're sketching out something real, living, breathing that you then would have a reason to nurture and take care of and move yeah. towards as opposed to a random cold concept of I'd like to be this yeah. in five years. And it, it's the most important person that you have, you know, responsibility for, because in the end, if you're not kind of a fully functioning human being who's, you know, semi happy in, in 10 years time and has found their purpose, you're going to be much worse at taking care of all the people who you probably are over caring for in today's day. So it's kind of like putting your oxygen mask on on the plane before you before you do it for other people. So it's we always forget it that we're actually really responsible for ourselves when we're running around looking after so many other people. But if you don't take care of yourself, those people are going to be much, much worse off. Yeah. And it's an easy I've always found it a very easy concept to think, of course, I'd fit my own before I dealt with my children. No problem at all. I thought that just meant I was a bad mother. And then I was like, oh, no, it means I'm selfless. <laughs> I th- one of the things I had, um, I don't know if you know, Dr. Kevin Dutton, who wrote The Good Psychopath Guide um, with Andy Whoa. McNabb, really brilliant book. He, he was on the podcast towards the end of last year. And he said the one bit, and he studied, obviously, within mainly the sort of psychopathic communities, both in high security prisons, but then also in business and in every other way. But he said, if you're looking at success, the thing that unites in his research people who become exceptionally successful as opposed to people who do fine is the people who are willing to do the stuff even when they don't feel like doing it. So they manage to find a way to do the thing. So the person who becomes an incredible elite athlete is the person who does still do the training when it's raining and they don't feel well and they can't be asked. They still do it. Is that, and is there an element of that in in your research in terms of, yes. So so how does that link into what you do and what you think? I mean, that's your small steps. So if you think about the the example that you gave with the athletes, normally people who want to become athletes will imagine themselves being an athlete in 10 years time, standing on a podium, lots of people are clapping, their family are really proud. What they should be imagining is what it's going to be like to put on the trainers in the horrible weather and go out and train anyway, so that they start kind of prepping their mind for when that happens, because that's the only way that's going to make them make them succeed. So the for me, I think the... The, the think big goal is the easy bit, actually, coming up with something that you might want to do. It's identifying what are the small steps that will actually allow you to get there. And also, what are the obstacles that are likely to stand in your way? So for the athlete, it would be weather. 
for people who are navigating, you know, other careers and including the athlete, it would be fear of fear of um, losing, wanting to save face. We call it the, the kind of the saving face effect. Other people will stand in your way. So what are you going to do when other people ultimately um, are withholding resources from you or withholding opportunities from you and being able to navigate around that? So most of the work and think big is actually around the small steps, you know, challenging your own narratives, which you've already already mentioned. And I'm quite fascinated by what are the things that people how how do people themselves hold themselves back because you know if somebody gets in your way um and if they're sexist or racist or homophobic if they have power you should stand up for yourself but it can be very hard to move that blockade let's be realistic the, you know the people are fighting this every single day and it's really really difficult but the majority of what stands in our way is ourselves and 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 i really like to help people to identify those moments but more than that to actually take action so rather than letting yourself block your your route to success um so that we start lacing up our trainers and and going out in the rain so this isn't you underestimating the barriers that exist it's you hoping to equip people to be able in the face of those real tangible barriers to still have some agency and be able exactly. to do something yeah exactly exactly and is it in, t- in terms of those, because you and I met on a panel, um, I can't remember what sector it was in, was it in finance or law? And yeah. it was looking at, yeah, well, I can't remember who finance. it was even for finance. And it was looking at removing, well, helping remove barriers to women in that sector. Yeah. And you talked about um, that statistic, which I think was, correct me if I'm getting it wrong, I think what you said on the day was that women will wait until they've got 100% of the skills before putting their hat in the ring for a job and men will do it at 60%. Is that what you yes. said? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is a staggering a staggering statistic still and that the fact that that is still the case i mean i think so usually people say that and they say well we should give the women more confidence training let's make the women more confident that will that of it all but if you look at the data in firms the men are being asked to go for promotions more the men are being given more opportunities and when they do put their hat in the ring they're being given an easier ride on average there will be some men probably introverted men but there will be some men who are having a hard time um but on average they are having an an easier time with these things so if I put myself in a situation where I'm working in a company where I know that people aren't really pushing me forward they might be pushing me back but they're definitely not pushing me forward I don't have you know um kind of opportunities to fail up in the way my other colleagues might have it's rational then to hold yourself back and wait until you have 100 110 120 percent you know um I did some work with Erica Brodnock that looked specifically at black professional women and they spoke about this where they would basically wait until they had done almost six times the work of some people in order to put themselves forward because they knew having looked at other colleagues who've gone through the cycle that as a black woman it was much less likely you to, you could get through for other women it's it's a lower it's a lower percentage it's about two and a half percent but but two and a half times but it's still there and then for a man it is rational to put yourself forward at sixty percent if you have the boss and somebody who has power saying, you know, you should go for you, you should go for this, John. I think this has your name on it. You know, we'll, we'll get you there. You have potential, and that's a word that's often used more about men than about women. So for me, the sixty hundred thing is a problem with the system and the structure and the way that we give some people opportunities, visibility, and voice, and not others. Um, but up to now, it's been interpreted we need to give women more confidence training. So women do end up then being over-mentored and, uh, you know, um, not getting enough advocation and not getting pushed forward enough. Yeah, there are still some alarming statistics. And again, I won't cite them because they they won't be exact right percentages, but about how much mentoring is thrown in the direction of women and how much sponsorship is thrown in the direction of men. And when actually what women women need is the traction and the sponsorship rather than the sort of, um, yeah, soft skills. 
I think society likes telling women what to do. So, I mean, we formalized it in a mentorship program, probably, you know, I think, yes. that's, I think that's the depressing kind of part of it. Whereas pretty much every woman, you know, who I've met is well able to navigate their career. What they need, like every other human being, is for doors to be opened and to have opportunities to show their genius and to show their potential. And, and they just don't get that as often. And part of that, you talked about the fact that we're more likely to think we're going to fail, but we are also more likely to fail because the system isn't stacked in our favour still. So it is more likely that a man will be picked and told yeah. you can do this and or be noticed. And in my world, I guess it would be, you know, you get picked to do tour support or whatever because of the chat you had afterwards at the gig as much as how you were on stage. And you talk about this because if you think about success versus failure, and I, do, you know, talk about this a lot in my kind of speaking career. And if if it wasn't for a fear of failure, we'd do most things. I mean, that really is what it comes down to very often, isn't it? Was I'm not going to do that because I might fail and it might not go yeah. very well. If we could remove that, and you, you talk about anticipated loss aversion, so the idea even before you get near it of, and that actually, if we were to feel yeah. that loss we are quite resilient, we probably could cope with it. But it's more something that happens far up, upstream from the cause and the effect of the of the loss. Is, is that right? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say about failure is that you're going to fail. And I think the idea of not doing something to avoid failure is bizarre, because you're going to fail at, at everything that you do. And if you're not failing, you're probably not achieving very much. You're preaching to the choir over here, I tell you. Yes. <laughs> um, but anticipated loss of vision does fascinate me. So the idea that we have you know, a body experience, our blood pressure goes up, it affects our cholesterol, it affects our mood, our anxiety about something that has, hasn't actually happened in the worst case scenario type mode. And that's what holds us back, um, is 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 both fascinating, both fascinating and depressing. And and I think the biggest way we can move from this is to really retrain ourselves and think about actually every time we take a shot on goal, it's not going to be successful. And maybe I'm going to keep going until I, in the very beginning, I'll say, I'm, I'm going to do something and I'm going to do it 30 times and I'm going to do it 30 times. And then I'm going to kind of think about how it went after those 30 times, because I know along the way there's going to be failures, but 30 is enough to get me to get me successes. And, and that works quite well with salespeople, for example, where they're very likely to be um, told no and get doors slammed in their face, but they have a certain amount of people that they're going to contact. And I think it applies to lots of other things in life. So for gigs for you, Callie, for example, you might say, look, I'm not going to start worrying about being terrible until I've done 30 gigs and everyone's booed. And then you might have one off in those 30. And then when you're reviewing it at 30, you say, actually, yeah, everyone's going to have a bad day. So I forgive myself and now, and now I'm resilient. So I think we need to reframe failure as it's actually part of the journey to not do so well, because that's the only way that we learn. And once you're accepting feedback of failures, then it's not even a failure at all. It's actually just another stepping stone to get you to get you to where, where you want to be. And there is, I think, Brene Brown's written a lot around the subject of there being no success without failure. And I yeah. certainly say in my in my speaking career that there you learn um, you learn so much more from a bad gig than a good gig, and that's absolutely true. Someone said to me, I had I normally um, I find in what I do there's much more of an alchemist thing with comedy. You never quite know how that's going to go, but with corporate speaking, you've got a much better idea of how it's going to go. And I had an unusually, what felt to me like an unusually bad after dinner speech last week. I don't think it was as bad as I thought, given the feedback, but I sort of think the bar's quite low for after dinner speaking being fun. I knew I could have done a lot better. But I talked to um, to uh, a friend of mine, a, a very seasoned comedian afterwards. We were chatting away. 
And he said to me, well, it's a bit like going to, you know, Vegas, isn't it? And you play the fruit machine and, and you know, and you sort of think, and, and you know, and you're sort of going for something that you hope is going to be there because you, if you play enough. But he said, if you switch that on its head and you think, well, if you do 50 of these after dinner speeches a year, and I thought I bloody wish I did, I wouldn't be worried yep. about money if that was the case. <laughs> um, but he said, if you do 50 of them, then three, are, three aren't going to be good or three might be shit. And you've just had one of your three, and that's inevitable yeah. if you look at fifty occasions that that'll be the case. Yeah. And I did. I liked. I liked that way of looking at it, looking at it in a sort of data. Is it? Because um, because how, how did you know, Callie? It was bad. So if you got good feedback, how did you come up with the conclusion? That it wasn't well, bad? this is a this is a sort of going to sound like a humble brag, and it isn't meant to be. I think we all get to a point, and you'll know this with everything you do. You know, you're brilliant on stage. You know, it's very. It's quite rare. I go to things where I see another speaker and go, oh god you know, they're brilliant. Not because I think I'm so great, but I think a lot of speakers have great topics, but don't know how to actually give the speech. And I'm sure you know what I mean. And where, and you absolutely have the whole lot, you know, you've just got the chops for it and you're funny and you're lovely to watch and, and interesting. Um, And when we get to the point where we know what we can achieve, we're measuring ourselves at a 10 out of 10, right? So we're going, I know I can blow the roof off. I can get laughs. I can get this. I can get people wrapped. I can get people with tears in their eyes. So then if all you get is people listening, a little bit of a titter and a bit of applause and one person coming up to you afterwards saying, oh, can I get your details? I'd like to book you for my thing. You think that was a damp squib. Whereas if you were brand new at after dinner speaking and you had that, you'd be like, oh my God, I'm great at this. So you move the parameters of what constitutes a good gig, don't you? I know that professional footballers talk about the fact that they'll never play what to them is as good a game once they're playing in the Premier League and every game they're meant to be outstanding. So it's like, if you're less than outstanding, you you fucked it up whereas actually at a lesser level you were outstanding if you did that one thing once do you know what I mean so suddenly the expectations get bigger don't they yeah they do they do which is a good thing I guess because it allows you to kind of sustain a certain level a certain level of quality but I do think that it's open that we we ourselves might be having bad days and be harsh judgment harsh judges on ourselves unnecessarily that is true. And also understanding what, you know, they say with comedians, you know, get the laughs that are in the room, get the response that's in the room. And perhaps I was also overestimating what could who happen. Was in the room? That. Yeah, who was in the room and what was possible. In terms of the, um, I want to ask you the three questions I ask everybody. But before I do, um, well, a couple of things. One is we've talked a lot about how this applies to kind of work, business, direction in life. Um, it, you also th- There's also stuff about relationships, right? So date, how, how you can make, can you apply it? So as a, as a asking for a friend, as a single 54-year-old, applying some of this stuff, all of these ideas, you can apply to dating or relationships or anything else, right? Yes, why not? Yeah. <laughs> not my expertise, but I'll give it a go. Can you just tell me how to find a nice boyfriend? No, I don't think that's your area of expertise, is it? It hasn't worked for me yet. <laughs> I mean, I, it's interesting. So People who study dating, which I don't, which I don't, so I will preface this, but people who study dating have really, I, I think there's two things that come out of the evidence. The firstly is you're better off looking around people who you know already, particularly if you are kind of over 30 and you have a decent kind of circle of friends, because you're much more likely to match with people who are within your own social networks. So usually people who we marry are quite kind of close to the people who we like to be around anyway. I think that's the first. And I think the second is, the more criteria that you have, and you can, you should have a lot of criteria. If, if um, you can you can be picky, but you just need to then kind of realize that actually finding that person is going to take longer and enjoy the process. There's nothing that can really speed that up. So if you have kind of ten criteria 
about a gentleman that you're looking for, it's going to be much harder to find it than say you just want somebody who has a pulse and who's at a, cer- a certain certain level of age. A pulse is good, and at my age, yeah. let's not take that for granted, especially if you like older people. Um, and is there, um, in terms of the uh, sort of looking at productivity through diversity and outstanding leadership through diversity, we talked a bit about sexism and patriarchal power. Yep. What are the sort of other isms do you think that we should be really aware of still? So what is still out there in terms of bias and what might, how other people's biases might stand in our way? I mean, it's interesting. I think if you are somebody who is different in terms of visible or invisible diversity compared to the majority of other people in the room, there is an ism that, that can be targeted at you unless that room becomes inclusive. And I think that's ultimately what my work is about is kind of for the majority of people, you know, when you're in corporate companies or in policies, we like to bracket people into groups. So we have, you know, women, we have um, uh, people of different ethnicities, we have people of different disabilities um, and, you know, we have people in the LGBTQ plus community. And I think doing that is really helpful for folk who um, come together and they share common experiences about the obstacles that are being put in, in the way. But at the end of the day, pretty much everyone in that group just kind of wants one thing. They want to be able to go to work, add value and get opportunities, visibility and voice. So they want to kind of be seen for who they are. The The, the ironic thing is the more different you are to the people who are already in the room, the more you actually have to offer the room compared to the people who are around the table, because they're all thinking the same, right? You're thinking different. And human, the, the kind of human setting of, of companies and, and team culture is that you're also coincidentally the most person who's likely to be locked out. And I think a lot of what I'm trying to do is to try to flip that and say, actually, well, you know, the economy isn't doing particularly well. It's very competitive in sectors. And the best thing you can do as a leader is lower your ego and realize you want diversity around the table. You might feel like you're in the boys club or in the the boys club plus the women who think like the boys club any longer. Um, and that might be hard for you, but you're going to gain in terms of innovation and creativity. And that's why you're showing, that's why you're showing up to work. And usually what we're aiming for is thinking about how can we make sure that people level opportunities, visibility and voice and the tactics of inclusive leadership are the same regardless of who's who, who is in the room around the table. So whether I'm talking about cultural differences, whether I'm talking about background differences or some other some other difference. I think sometimes there are people who need more reasonable adjustments than others. So for example, if you're a woman who is looking after the kids, it is nice to be able to have more autonomy over choosing your hours. Um, But that's not just something that women want. Everyone wants that regardless of of their gender. It just happens that women will benefit more because they're looking looking after the kids. So I think we overcomplicate it and just imagine that there's so many different populations of people with so many different needs and it's really difficult to accommodate them when actually What's holding us back are that uh, leaders are still too high ego. They don't like being channeled and they like being around people like themselves. And if we can shortcut and get rid of that tendency, then the beauty of diversity and the beauty of difference will become much more welcome around the table. And that person who's leading will just automatically make adjustments to bring people into the room so that they can actually get their genius and get their ideas. I love that. Can you write your next book called Lower Your Ego? Yes, I would love to. I, I mean, really it, think that would be interesting, honestly. It's a funny it's a funny thing. I've often been asked by pretty senior people to like audit their meetings and they'll just say, look, my team, there's something wrong with them. Can you help? And often it's them. I have to say it's you. Like you talk too much. You don't oh, I'd love to see anything. this conversation play out. And I'd have loved you to audit some of the meetings when I was in boardrooms. 
But it can, but it's interesting, isn't it? If you're somebody who has decision-making power that you go in and you do all of the talking in the meeting, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Just make the decision and let the people have more time off. It's like people um, who will not recruit people who are going to give them a run for their money. I always wanted at least two members of my team who were absolutely chomping at the bit, giving me a run for my money, yeah. quite challenging, where I thought you could absolutely do my job in six months. I always yeah. used because you get, it makes your job so much easier because you've got these incredible thinkers and people who are massively ambitious yeah. and dynamic and, and doing things that crucially aren't how you're doing them because they're not you. Um, it seems so simple. Uh, it's not done very often in business. Namaste, motherfuckers. And what would you, Grace, what would you pick as your namaste, motherfucking life-changing moment? So I think about about 10 years ago, I met somebody who was a really um, senior leader in politics and realizing that they weren't smart in any way, shape or form really gave me a namaste moment that I've managed to repeat over and over again. And I'm not saying that all senior people in senior positions are terrible, but I think there's enough of them. I would say it's probably 50-50 where you see people who just really probably aren't that cut out for the job. And that really kind of led me to a lot of research on kind of mediocrity, mediocre men, thinking about groupthink that ultimately really shifted shifted my career and shifted my perspective. So up to then, I was thinking about discrimination, which is which is which is still something that is worthy of study and is, is still something that's super important in our society. But I think on the flip side of that, then there's this problem of kind of mediocre men who manage to play really good politics has fascinated me. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick that. Meeting that one person who was mediocre changed my life. And I'd love to know <laughs> the name and I'm guessing you're not gonna give it to me. I won't, I won't. But <laughs> but 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 yeah, it, it, it's quite it's a like, big field. I'd I'd love to say, well I it must be this person, yeah. but I could give you a did list. Did you see did you see the videos by led by donkeys that they have around? Oh my God. They're absolutely absolutely they brilliant. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Put a, we'll put a link to that. And this was where they were trying to get, um, yeah, where it was sort of, um, yeah, lobbying and cash for, yes. yeah, cash for questions. Yeah, it was ama- amazing, amazing, amazing. We'll put links to that. I watched it all. I was doing a tryout for Have I Got News For You that week. And it was one of the things that I thought would come up. So I, I watched them all in much more forensic detail. But my God, that is a masterclass in how some fantastic. people shouldn't have the jobs they've got. It's fantastic. And I mean, it and in honesty, you could have picked the ones who answered the phone. Like, I mean, it, it, you know, I didn't. I wish I had played this game. Okay, this is good. They've contacted 12. <laughs> who do you think were the most likely? Oh, that's I think a you good... could pick them. Yeah. <laughs> you could. You could. Yeah, we'll link to that. I think that's a very good accompaniment to your namaste motherfucking moment. <laughs> and what, um, apart from watching the Led by Donkeys clips, what's your favourite joke? Um, knowledge isn't free. You have to pay attention. Excellent. Hold on. A very nerdy, yeah. very nerdy yeah. joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not often we get ones that are deep thinkers. Normally it's more your Christmas <laughs> cracker knob gag. So thank you for bringing an erudite dimension <laughs> to that question. And if you could give one bit of life advice, Grace, to anybody listening, what would it be? I think it's don't think that people are taking too much notice of you and go for what you want. You know, the, the spotlight effect is one of the, the biases in behavioral science that has really good evidence. And, and it basically says that when you think people are watching you, watching you fluff up, watching you make your mistakes, they're not. They're too much involved in their own life. And you can let that depress you. But I think it's actually really freeing. It means that you should kind of go forward, take chances and ultimately kind of free yourself of the fear of failure and the anticipated loss aversion that we've been talking about. <laughs> That was Grace Lorden. 
and we've put a link to her website where you can find all the details of her book and her other exciting stuff in the show notes as we always do so that is it for this week thank you so much for listening please do remember to rate review and recommend us thank you so much for supporting us we absolutely love all the comments and love we get from our lovely listeners and we will be back in your feed next thursday as always when i will be talking to jenny eclair i think that that you know is my deepest fear is something happening to people i love namaste motherfuckers was written and presented by me callie beaton and produced by mike hansen and karusha dami for pod people productions with music by jake yap i'm callie beaton until next time motherfuckers Namaste, motherfucker!